In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It seems that ever since mankind's fall into sin, people have been looking for a way to get back into Eden, looking for a way to get back into God's good graces, to recover their lost innocence, searching for a way to earn the approval of the God who cursed Adam and Eve on account of their sin and sent them packing. And so what do they do? Well, the light of natural reason is enough to tell them that God is angry with all those who disobey his law. And so they conclude that obedience to God's law must be the way to make him happy again. They envision that God's law is a ladder and it's one that they can climb all the way from earth to heaven. And so they get to work. Up the ladder they go. And along the way, they expect that each new rung, each new good work that they do, will bring them closer to the moment when they they will hear God's voice say, good job, you did it. That's high enough. This latter mentality, well, it's it's the common thread that runs through just about every natural religion and philosophy that man has ever invented. It goes by different names, of course. Islam has five pillars. Buddhism has the eightfold path. Hinduism has karma. And even the ancient Greek philosophers busied themselves with trying to figure out the best way to get up that ladder. Aristotle taught that moral goodness is a skill. It's a habit that you can learn. He said that we become righteous individuals by practicing good deeds over and over until they become second nature. He looked at the world around him and he saw that people become good builders by practicing building things. People become good musicians by practicing their instruments over and over. And therefore, he concluded that we too become virtuous by practicing the habits of virtue. So you want to be a brave person? Do brave things. You want to be an honest person? Tell the truth all the time. You want to be a just person? Treat others with fairness. Now you've got to admit that on the surface, Aristotle's reasoning has a lot of appeal. I mean, if you're trying to become righteous by climbing a ladder of obedience, then it certainly makes sense to think that God will be most pleased with you when he sees that you're taking obedience seriously. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why many of Aristotle's ideas found such a warm welcome in the medieval Roman Catholic Church. The church's theologians who were most enamored with Aristotle were were called the scholastics. It's a fancy word, but uh, basically just means we love Aristotle a whole lot. And they were very influential in shaping the church's doctrine. In fact, when Martin Luther began his theological training as an Augustinian monk, even then, he was deeply annoyed to find that the scholastics that he was forced to read were more persuaded by the words of Aristotle than by the words of Holy Scripture. 
The scholastic theologians thought that they could apply the logic of Aristotle to Christian theology and come up with a system of works that would take you all the way from the bottom of the ladder to the top. In fact, one of the ways that they tried to do this is by reworking the definition of faith. Under the influence of the scholastics, the church began to teach that faith is a body of knowledge about Christ that motivates love and obedience in the heart. In essence, they turned faith into a work. They said that the more you know about Jesus, the more you're able to kindle that spark of love in your heart and do what Jesus commands. Under this system, faith becomes a head knowledge about God that acts like a spiritual fertilizer. So you get enough head knowledge in there and love for God will start to grow here in your heart. And that love eventually will produce the willpower that you need in order to keep God's commandments. First comes the faith that knows, then the love that grows, and then the work that shows. There was one scholastic theologian in particular, a man named Gabriel Beale, who even said that to those who do what is in them, God will not deny grace. Essentially, what he was saying to all those ladder climbers out there was do your best and God will take care of the rest. God will look at your best efforts to please him and to love him and to keep his law because you really, really tried and you really, really wanted to cooperate and obey. He will make up the difference in whatever amount of righteousness that you lack. And then you will hear his voice say to you, good job, you did it, that's high enough. That's why at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church outright rejected the claim that faith alone justifies. Faith alone was never enough, they said, could never be enough. It required love, it required works, it required a ladder that you could climb on your way back to Eden. But there's a problem. Because when we think of God's law as a system of merit, when we think of it as a ladder that earns us points with God the higher we climb, we discover that we've bought into a system of salvation that is completely powerless to save. What happens to us is that we grab hold of this ladder, we start to climb, we give it our best, and we do indeed hear God's voice along the way. Only it doesn't sound like the kind, gentle, fatherly encouragement that we thought that we would hear. Instead, when we're on the ladder and we hear God's voice, it sounds like he's screaming at us, screaming that we're worthless, screaming that we deserve to die, screaming that we're cursed. What we're hearing is God's voice as he speaks to us through his law. And this is the point that St. Paul makes at the beginning of the epistle text that was read just a moment ago from the third chapter of Romans. Now we know that whatever the law says, 
It speaks to those who are under the law, those on the ladder, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What's the bottom line? The law never excuses us. Rather, it always accuses us. The law never blesses. It always curses. The law never saves. It always condemns. And the higher that we try to climb that ladder, the louder the threats and the accusations of the law become. Now, back when we first started climbing the ladder, we imagined that God would be impressed with our desire to obey, that he would go ahead and reward our attempts, our earnest attempts to be a good person. We thought our best efforts were going to make him happy. But the voice of the law tells us that God isn't happy. He's still angry. And no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, God is never impressed. We thought our obedience would persuade God to be our friend, and we're shocked that we discover through the law that he's still our enemy. We thought our sincerity would at least count for something, and we're appalled when we hear that God shows no partiality. And so we find ourselves clinging to this ladder, hearing nothing but God's condemnation, and what do we do? we begin to hate him. We begin to accuse God of injustice. Why does God have to be so demanding, so cruel, so unreasonable? Why is he always accusing me with this law? Why is nothing that I've done ever worthy of his love? Now, St. Paul knows what it's like to hear God's angry voice when you're up there on the ladder. He was once a climber himself. Remember what he writes to the Philippians? If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul climbed the ladder just about as high as anyone ever has. But then he made a discovery. He discovered that the law that he thought was leading him to life was actually killing him. And contrary to Aristotle's ideas, the more, try, the more Paul tried to be obedient to the law, the, more, the less virtuous he became, the more disobedient he became. The more he tried to obtain righteousness by keeping the law, the more he discovered the depth of his own sinfulness. The more he tried his best when the law said, do this, the more he heard, heard God's voice say, not enough, not enough, not enough. What Paul needed and what we need is a new kind of righteousness. A righteousness that doesn't come from our obedience. A righteousness that doesn't send us climbing into the 
full-throated fury of God's law. And thanks be to God, we have that righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Through Christ, God justifies us by his grace as a gift. He declares us righteous by faith apart from any works of the law. The righteousness of God comes to us not from what we do, but from what we receive. Not from making ourselves worthy of God's love by our obedience, but by hearing God's voice declare us to be righteous because of faith in the righteous one. Our righteousness comes through Christ, who exchanges his purity for our uncleanness, who gives us his pure robe for our dirty rags. And this, this is what the Reformation was all about. Not simply arguments over indulgences or the power of the Pope, but it was about recapturing the heart of the gospel, the good news that sinners are made righteous before God without working for it, that the way back to Eden isn't found at the top of a ladder. Rather, it's found at the foot of the cross. When God speaks his declaration, when he says that you are righteous through faith in Jesus, he isn't creating a legal fiction. He isn't doing sleight of hand. God's not a magician. And justification by faith isn't a magic trick. He doesn't use misdirection to trick us into thinking that our sins have vanished when all the while they're just still there hidden, hidden underneath the magician's hat. God is holy. He only accepts genuine righteousness. Every sin is a trespass against his holiness. Every trespass incurs a penalty, and every penalty must be paid for. And it has been not with gold or silver, and certainly not with your best efforts, but with the holy, precious blood of Jesus, with his innocent suffering and death. Jesus didn't have to climb a ladder to God because he descended from God. He is God wrapped in human flesh. To us, the law says, do this, and it is never done. But Jesus fulfilled the law, all of it, every single one of those impossible commands. The law constantly accuses us, but at his baptism and again at his transfiguration, Jesus hears the words, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The law threatens us with punishment and death. But Jesus comes along and he puts his own back between us and the scourge of the whip. He puts his own hands and feet between us and the point of the nails. He takes the cup of God's wrath out of our hands and he puts it to his lips and he drinks it to the dregs. That's what Paul means when he says that God publicly displayed Jesus as, at his death as our propitiation. That means as our mercy seat. 
The, the cross is where the full perfection of Christ meets the full penalty for the sins of the whole world, where the blessing meets the curse, where the tree of death becomes our tree of life. At the cross, Jesus becomes our substitute, our redeemer, our righteousness. God's declaration that you're reconciled to him through faith in Jesus is no illusion. It's a costly reality, and it's a cost that has been paid in full. And now, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it is yours. But how can faith alone justify? Well, because faith isn't our work. Nor is it a fertilizer that energizes our hearts so somehow our obedience can earn us credit with God. If that were the case, then God would owe us something. We would have a reason to boast. We'd be back on the ladder. No, faith alone justifies because faith is trust. It's trust in a promise It's a passive reliance on the promises spoken to us in the Word of God. And that's why Paul can say that faith doesn't leave any room for boasting. Because faith is not our work. It's God's work in us, to us. Faith is not the fuel that sends you up the ladder, but it's trust in the one who descended from the Father and who ascended back to the Father so that he could be your mediator, Christ the righteous, the bridge between a holy God and sinful man. Faith kills the old Adam who wants to earn God's righteousness. Faith produces a childlike trust in our heart that believes God when he says your transgressions are forgiven, your sin is covered. Now, while we rejoice in the many blessings that God has given the church through the Reformation, we also have to acknowledge that certain men, in their zeal to break from Rome, went too far. Men like Calvin, Zwingli, others. Men who, yes, made the confession that faith alone justifies, but who were willing to abandon the clarity of God's promises just so they could run far, far away from the Pope. These men and others who have since followed in their path and the path of their teaching, distorted, obscured, and in some, place, in some instances silenced the promises of grace that are given to us through baptism and the Lord's Supper. They looked inwardly for the assurance of grace rather than toward the visible signs to which God attached his word as a promise. And that's one of the many reasons that we have this morning to rejoice for our Lutheran heritage, for those who have taught us to believe, teach, and confess that baptism and the Lord's Supper are physical means by which our Lord comes to us and gives to us his promises of grace. What happens there at the font, here at the altar and the rail, is not your work. It's not an act of obedience that you owe to God. It's not a merely symbolic ritual that helps you to remember just what Jesus did for you. 
No. The font and the rail are where the king of glory meets you so that he can give you his gifts, his mercy. Where he takes a little water and through the lips and the hands of the pastor, he proclaims that your sins are washed away. Where he takes some ordinary bread and wine and through them gives you his true body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Faith doesn't look inward, it looks to another. Faith doesn't look to its own work, it receives the work of another. It comes empty-handed to the one who has already done all the work for you. Faith alone justifies, because faith believes the promises. It receives the gifts. It trusts in the mercy of the giver. Once, Adam and Eve lost their innocence. They handed this world over to the curse of sin and death and the power of the devil. But now, that innocence has been restored. Not by climbing a ladder of good works, but by faith alone in Christ, who has done all the work for you.